Good morning, everyone. As some of you may know, one of my main lifelong hobbies has been to study and to teach various Japanese martial arts. I've probably invested 40 years of my life or so in that pursuit. So I have an affinity for things Japanese. And recently, I stumbled upon this wonderful Japanese pottery art called kintsugi. Kintsugi, it means golden repair. It's the art of taking a broken piece of pottery, pottery and mending the fractured pieces back together with a lacquer that's mixed with gold or silver or other precious metals. The art is to take what's, what was once whole, then shattered, and then bring it back to life, broken yet beautiful. The story goes back to the 15th century. A Japanese shogun broke his favorite teacup, and so he sent it to China to get it repaired. You know, maybe it was still under warranty. I, I don't know. Uh, he was adamant that he didn't want a new teacup. He wanted his old cup restored. And his persistence paid off. When the cup was returned, the shogun was fascinated with how beautiful it was with the cracks and the pieces all mended together with liquid gold and silver. And so began the art of kintsugi. Instead of trying to hide the cracks and the broken pieces, kintsugi actually highlights and enhances the irregular patterns that are formed, and in doing so, adds to the value of the broken object. Its brokenness is part of its history, and accenting its brokenness actually increases the piece's value. Think about that for a second. Its brokenness is part of its history and actually increases its value. Think what it might mean if we applied that principle to our lives, to our past, to our relationships. Instead of disguising or hiding our broken pieces, instead of throwing away pieces of our lives, what if we believe brokenness is actually part of our history and actually increases our life's value? That was the prophet Haggai's way of life. That was his mission to help people, the people of God, rebuild what was broken. More than any of the other minor prophets, Haggai points people towards a God who heals and who restores, who fills in the cracks of life with gold and silver. In case you're new this morning or you haven't been in worship recently, let me kind of set the stage. We're going through an overlooked portion of the Bible called the Minor Prophets to see how God might bring hope to people in tough circumstances. The message of the Minor Prophets is intertwined with the history of ancient Israel. So we have to know some of the historical background to fully appreciate the message. After the death of King Solomon around the year 931 B.C., the nation of Israel was split in by a bitter civil war. Both sides of the conflict had their peaks and valleys, so to speak, but mostly they all abandoned their faith in Yahweh God. So God let them have their way. For several hundred years, the prophets spoke of the corruption and cultural decay eating away at their insides while foreign armies attacked from the outside. Nobody listened, and eventually both nations were conquered, and then their conquerors were conquered. Finally, in the year 586 B.C., the magnificent Jerusalem, the pride and joy of Israel was just leveled to the ground, burned to a crisp. And you can read about that in 2 Chronicles 36. The majority of the Jewish people were carried off into captivity in Persia. And a number of the Psalms were written about this forced deportation and show the despair and the anguish of the Jewish people. In time, the Jews settled into living in their captive world, but always with the dream of someday returning to their homeland. And eventually, two small waves of people were allowed to return to Jerusalem. The second wave was led by a man named Ezra, around 460 B.C. Ezra's main goal was to rebuild the temple, 
Because the temple was the symbol of God's presence in Israel. Symbolically, the condition of the temple represented the condition of their hearts before God. So if it was still a pile of rubble, that didn't say much for the people of Israel. Ezra starts to rebuild, but it wasn't going very well. I mean, Jerusalem is just in shambles. You have to imagine a city like like Aleppo, Syria, after being destroyed in the battle against ISIS. It's completely wrecked. I mean, nothing was working. No infrastructure, no government, just chaos. Ezra's attempts to rebuild the protective wall around the city had failed, and so they were wide open to attack from marauding bands. Everything in the city was broken, including the spirit of the people. They grew complacent. They grew kind of a me-first mentality. They forgot why God had called them to Jerusalem. They forgot that they were part of God's plan to rebuild and to restore. They forgot that they were God's kintsugi, They were the gold and the silver that would repair the broken temple and make it more beautiful than ever. So Haggai must bring some hope to a very dark situation and to some very broken people. Let me read from chapter 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadic, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. It is a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but have harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink, but you will never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountain and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Haggai's words come as both a reminder and a rebuke because the people forgot the mission God had called them to pursue. Their daily lives had just gotten in the way, and they were were just tired. They were worn out physically, but much more than that, they were spiritually exhausted. They were stressed out, so they zoned out. Has that ever happened to you? They zoned out on God's mission, though. You know, the famous Green Bay Packer football coach, Vince Lombardi, once said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I know he's right. That's what happens when fatigue sets into body, mind, and soul. That's when people start making bad decisions. That's when people get irritable. That's when people lose focus for their lives. And that's what happened to those who were called upon to rebuild. So Haggai gives them this strong challenge. And the wonderful thing is, the people listened. Let me go on with verse 12 in chapter 1. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, Joshua, son of Josadic, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the Lord's message, gave this message to the Lord of the people. Message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah. 
and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadic, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, stirred up the, the spirit of Joshua, stirred up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. One short speech by Haggai, and the lights went on. I mean, I wish I was that kind of preacher. Three paragraphs, and he had them eating out of his hand. You know, I wish. But it wasn't Haggai's speech that did it. It wasn't the cleverness of his words. It was God's spirited work in the heart of the leaders and the people that got them stirred up and propelled them to get back on track, to put life into perspective and to focus on first things first. And that meant putting God first, getting focused on God's mission to rebuild what was broken. Remember, the temple was symbolic of the condition of their own hearts before God. They would only find personal wholeness and restoration when they put God first and they allowed God to put the broken pieces of their lives back together. You know, the same principle is true for us. We have to put Christ first in our hearts if we seek to repair the damage that sin has done in our lives and in the world. We still have the same mandate from the Lord to allow Christ to rebuild what is broken in our world. And there is so much that is broken internally and externally. More and more I think people have the sense that the external things around us are just so broken. That things are not working the way that they should. Another mass casualty shooting in California last Wednesday. The things we have trusted in, in many ways, have let us down, whether it's government or media, the economy, school systems, even families, relationships, churches, our political and marketplace leaders, even our religious leaders. The things that we have trusted in have let us down. And so our confidence is shaken. And what's the solution? You know, pass a few more laws, get more regulations. Is that going to get us back on track? Raise more taxes to get more funding or, or cut taxes to boost business? Is the answer bigger government or lesser government? Maybe neither of those is really the answer. And, I, and personally, I think authentic Christianity uh, just doesn't fit neatly into either political party. Never has and never will. There's got to be a better way. I think we've reached the point where there are so many variables we can hardly cope with the complexity of the mess that we're in. And I think we need to recognize it's not just something out there that's broken. It's not just some institution that needs fixing or changing a few leaders and that'll fix it. It's broken in here too. People are broken. We are broken. There are broken things in each of our hearts. Sin has fractured ourselves as well as our world. There's something that needs to be rebuilt within each one of us. Things in us aren't working the way We'd like them to be. We've got problems and worries and griefs and burdens and sins that are weighing us down. And they're stealing the joy out of life. Everybody has something that is broken within. That's universal. And so we need to recognize our brokenness and then turn to the Lord and see how God can begin a work in us to face those problems, deal with the brokenness in a restorative way. We come to the Lord to see how he can perform kind of a spiritual kintsugi on the broken pieces of our hearts. How does that rebuilding begin? What's the first step? 
A lot of people talk about wanting to change their situation, change their country, change the world, but how does it really happen? I mean, it sounds great, but how does it start? Whether we're talking about cultural and institutional rebuilding or rebuilding a broken life, the process is somewhat similar. And that's when you realize that in rebuilding anything, the hardest step is the first one. I mean, was it Confucius who said, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step? Well, what is that first single step that gets you going to rebuild what it's broken? Something has to stir in a person's heart. A starting gun that gets people go going. And that starting gun is usually one of three things. It's either desperation, frustration, or inspiration. Desperation, frustration, or inspiration. First, desperation. A desperation comes the moment you hit bottom, when you've got nothing left, no strength, no resources, no hope. Desperation means you've reached a dead end, you've bottomed out, you've had it, because nothing has worked, and you're kind of right on the edge just holding on by your fingernails. And all you can do is shout out that one very important four-letter word, H-E-L-P. You say, God, help me. And this time you're serious. No more pretense, excuses. You know you can't do it on your own. You go to God because you've got no other option. You're at the end of your rope and you find that God finally gives you something to hang on to. Desperation is for some the first step in beginning to rebuild. And it's a good place to be, especially if you're battling an addiction, alcohol, drugs, sex, porn, spending, cutting, whatever it might be. Desperation really reflects those first three steps of the 12-step program. You know, that's a scriptural model for how to rebuild a life. Because first you admit that you're powerless over your brokenness, that your life has become unmanageable. If you, if you don't reach that point, then nothing can be done to help you. You have to admit your helplessness. And then second, you come to believe that a power greater than yourself can restore you to sanity. A force outside of self has to intervene, and that's God. And third, you make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. You stop playing religion, and you sincerely open yourself to a relationship with the Lord. If you're running away from God, if you're battling an addiction or some kind of compulsive chronic problem, then desperation is a good first step. You're brought to your knees in surrender. And that's the first way change can begin. The second way is through frustration. When something is uh, often called having a Popeye moment. You know that old cartoon character Popeye? He would get pushed around by his arch nemesis, Bluto, because Bluto was always trying to steal the affections of Popeye's girlfriend, Olive Oil. I never understood why. But Bluto wanted olive oil for himself. Bluto would bully Popeye until Popeye would just reach his boiling point, and then he'd say, I've had all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. He'd pop open a can of raw spinach, which temporarily, for some reason, gave him superhuman strength, and then they'd just kind of beat the tar out of poor old Bluto. But a Popeye moment, it's not desperation, it's frustration. It's that moment that has been building for a long time. The Popeye moment is when you say to yourself, I won't live like this anymore. I will do something to change my situation. That's Rosa Parks saying she won't sit in the back of the bus anymore. That was her Popeye moment. And that's a good place to be if you say to yourself, what I'm doing isn't working, so I have to change. I have to change myself, my behavior, change what I'm doing if I hope to bring change 
to my circumstances. Now the danger with frustration is that people can go very negative here. It's an anger that's rising, kind of like the mercury in an old-fashioned thermometer. It reaches the top and then something explodes and some people will vent that pent-up anger on others and just make things worse. But a godly frustration turns into positive motivation. You become highly motivated to say, with God's help, I will make a change. I'm tired of the way I'm living, and with God's help, I'm going to live differently. But the third way was the way of Haggai. Not desperation, frustration, but a moment of inspiration. A sudden, sudden shocking awareness, uh, an epiphany that opens your eyes to th see things from God's point of view. And that's what happened to the leaders and the people of Jerusalem. The proverbial scales fell from their eyes and they began to see things with God's heart. And that brought them to their knees, not in desperation, but in awe. You feel how God feels about something and it shakes you. A moment of sudden insight. I mean, they'd been living right next to the broken down temple, you know, building and furnishing their own homes while God's house was neglected. They saw it every day. But they didn't really see it. And all of a sudden, God's Spirit stirs them up through Haggai's preaching. They realize that they had their priorities all mixed up. Until this moment, their faith in God, their religion, it was kind of just an accessory to their otherwise busy life. They had a lot going on. And I can hear them saying, well, you know, a well, little God is good, but let's not get carried away. Let's not take it too seriously. You know, so many people grow comfortable having little exposure, a little bit of faith in their lives. But that little exposure to Christ sort of acts like a vaccine against the real thing. That's what vaccines do. You take a weakened form of a disease-causing microorganism, inject it into the body so that it stimulates the body's immune system to destroy it. And the body will more easily recognize and destroy the toxin in the future. That's what happens when people who get a small exposure to a weakened version of faith in Christ. It's just enough so that faith is kind of like a, a low-grade interest in their lives. One where God becomes really just an accessory to an already busy life. The leaders and the people come to a sudden awareness of how much their situation was an offense against God. They realized the temple was great because it was the place from which God's name went out to the world. They'd been oblivious to what was going on, like they were sitting in the bleachers and weren't even watching the game. Self-absorbed would be the right word. And for the first time, they understood that God must be the organizing center around which everything else rotates. For the first time, they realized they were broken, and even that was offending the glory of God. They woke up to a new reality, not desperation, not frustration, but inspiration. The Lord stirred up their hearts. Well, what about us? In whatever that is broken in you, in whatever that needs rebuilding, and in whatever way you need to be motivated to take a first step, I pray that you will do it. I pray God will stir up your heart. Don't ignore God's pull on your heart today. Desperation, frustration, inspiration, any of those can be a movement of the Holy Spirit in your life depending on your own situation. Let God move you. Let Christ shake you up and empower you. Let that happen. Let God open your heart to the broken things of this world, the broken people. Look inside yourself, but also look outside 
This is a hemorrhaging and hurting world. There are broken hearts, fractured families. They need you to be at your best, to be on your knees in prayer, to use all of who you are to serve God's greater glory right here and right now. Let God do a kintsugi on your life. Let God use you to mend the broken lives of others. Years ago, uh, an angry man with a knife rushed the uh, Rieks Museum in Amsterdam and started slashing uh, Rembrandt's famous picture, Night Watch. Another distraught man took a hammer to Michelangelo's beautiful sculpture, the Piate, in St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. Both of those cherished works of art were severely damaged, but what did the officials do? Throw them out? Forget about them? No, they got the very best experts they could to make every effort to restore those treasures. That's God's work of spiritual restoration in you. That's God's kintsugi. By his sovereign grace, God can bring good out of our failures, even out of our sin. And Jesus, you know, he was broken for us. He was broken for you and me. And he was and is now perfect. His perfection comes, but he was once broken, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus was broken at the cross, but, the, but he rose from the dead and with the most precious scars that anyone could ever bear on his body, which actually made him more beautiful as our Savior. You see, the more broken you are, the more beautiful you are because he has so much more to put back together. And so it doesn't matter how many scars you carry. We all have some, some more than others, but we are all unique, and yet we are all able to be put back together by his same grace. And oh, how beautiful the process of being beautifully broken. And how sweet and precious it is in the hands that mend us and put us back together. The hands of the precious potter. Jesus puts us back together, gives us value. We are broken people restored by Christ. The only one in the universe who can really do it. Today, can you embrace being beautifully broken? Can you embrace being beautifully broken? Broken but beautifully restored by the grace of Jesus Christ. Would you humble yourself and accept that you need a Savior to come into your life and start putting back every piece that's been shattered? Will you let God rebuild you, rebuild what is broken in you? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are in the process of mending broken things that you mend broken hearts and broken souls and broken lives, Lord. Things that we've done, things that others have done to us have caused our brokenness in this world of sin, Lord. And you called us to be agents of reconciliation and rebuilding in a fractured world. But Lord, we can't do that unless we first have it done to us. It can't happen through us until it happens to us. So Lord, do your work of spiritual rebuilding, wherever we might find broken places in our hearts this morning. Would you meet us there and help us to become whole? We thank you for the beauty of being broken. And it's your name we pray. Amen.